Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In 2010, Sue Neal Fraser was convicted of murdering her husband one year earlier. Her case is far from being closed, though, as she has many supporters who refuse to give up on her and feel that she is innocent. Her partner's body has never been found, and her conviction was based on circumstantial evidence. She has never wavered in her claim of innocence, but her extremely wavering recollections of her actions on the day and night of her partner's disappearance were her downfall. If you would like nice, tidy, open and closed cases, this is not the episode for you. Two of the main characters' stories change quicker than you can catch the Delta variant. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Today, I'm physically recording on my small sailboat, which is anchored off the coast of Karakou, but I'd mentally like to take you with me to another island called Tasmania. Tasmania is Australian. It's located as far south as you can go and still be part of Australia. It's a green and fertile land that clashes beautifully with the blue sea surrounding it. Locals call the island Tassie, and I'd love to drink some of Australia's most respected beers that are brewed on the island. Sit back, take a sip of your favorite beverage, and let's try to make sense of this case. Bob Chapel and Sue Neil Fraser had a shared plan to move aboard their newly purchased sailboat and enjoy exploring the coast of Australia. Bob was 65 years old. He wasn't a big man, rather fairly average and lean. He worked as a physician at the Royal Hobart Hospital in Tasmania. Sue was 56 years old. She was nearly the same height as Bob and by appearances didn't weigh much more or less than he did. She had owned and worked at an equestrian center, which she had recently sold. Both Sue and Bob had children from their previous marriages, but their children were grown and lived on their own. They had been living together for over 18 years, but they had never officially tied the knot. That didn't seem to bother them, though. Retirement was right around the corner, and their dreams of exploring and sailing were about to become reality. In September of 2008, Bob and Sue had found the perfect boat. It was called the Four Winds. It was a beautiful 16-meter or 52-foot catch. For a non-sailor, this means that it has two masts, with a smaller one behind the main mast, but in front of the rudder, which steers the boat. Knowing that they wanted to leave for long periods of time, Bob felt that it was prudent to get to know the boat inside and out. They were doing lots of projects to fix the Four Winds up, but also just to learn about all the little particulars of the boat. They had owned it for a couple of months by this time. As a matter of fact, it had only been tied to a mooring ball for just a few weeks in the Derwin River off of Sandy Bay. They were very excited about their new prospects. As many sailors like to joke, their happiest day is buying the boat, and the second happiest day is selling it. On Australia Day of 2009, they used the extra time off to their advantage 
And instead of taking the day off, they continued their work on their boat. They packed supplies and took their dinghy out to the four winds early that morning. They did several jobs, and around lunchtime, Sue decided she wanted to go home, while Bob decided he would stay and continue working on the boat. He wanted to sleep on the boat for the night, and if he needed anything, he could always call her at home. So Sue left her phone there for him to use, and she took the white and blue dinghy that they owned. She drove it from the Four Winds to the nearby docks at the Royal Yacht Club. Once she reached home that evening and was relaxing, she got a strange phone call from a friend of Bob's daughter, Claire. According to him, Claire claimed to have had a terrible feeling that something bad was going to happen to her father. Claire had a history of mental illness, so Sue wasn't sure what to think when it came to that phone call. This call came in around 10.30. It ended her evening, and she went to bed after. The next morning, a couple of men noticed a dinghy floating loose. They retrieved the dinghy and tied it up and secured it. Strangely, it didn't look as if the dinghy had come untied and floated loose, as the painter was inside the dinghy. Sailors have multiple names for everything, and a painter is a rope that ties the dinghy to another boat or to the docks. If it had come loose, the rope would have been submerged in the water and floated alongside the dinghy rather than being inside the boat. As the two men glanced around the harbor, trying to figure out who the dinghy might have belonged to, they noticed that a boat was sitting very low in the water. It appeared to be sinking. They decided to take their own dinghy out to see if anyone was on board. When they approached the boat, they identified it as being the Four Winds. The men knocked on the hull of the boat, trying to get the owner's attention, but it seemed that no one was on board. They called out, but no one answered. After a preliminary look around and seeing some blood on the deck, and some more leading down to the companionway into the interior of the boat, they knew it was time to call the authorities. By 7.30 that morning, police officers had arrived at the boat and shared two jobs. Some of them worked to pump the boat dry, while others tried to process evidence. This was a crime scene that they weren't accustomed to. The officers were able to stop the flow of water into the boat and were eventually able to get it out. In doing so, they realized that the boat had been sabotaged. A pipeline to the toilet had been cut, which allowed water to flow into the boat, and a secondary seacock had been opened. A seacock is a valve in the hull of a boat, which permits water to flow into the vessel. Sometimes it's a sink, or something for the engine, or a drain, or maybe for a toilet. They can be left open or closed depending on the situation. This seacock had been opened intentionally. The interesting thing about it was it had been located underneath a carpet and a removable piece of flooring. A wire that would normally activate a bilge pump, which would pump out excess water, had been disconnected. The boat had been compromised intentionally. Earlier, when police had realized that the boat was sinking, they had called the secondary owner of the boat to come to the scene. This was Sue Neil Fraser. Sue, of course, asked if Bob was okay, but the officer said no one was found on board the boat. She immediately called her family, who came to her at her home. When they arrived, they said it was clear that Sue was in shock. Her daughters expressed concern for her state. Her family physician was called. 
The physician gave a prescription for Valium, which Sue then took. Eventually, she and her family made her way to the dock later that day. Once there, police officers escorted her to the boat so they could ask her about things that were out of place or may have been missing. She noted that a fire extinguisher was missing, as well as some carpeting, a winch handle that was typically stored in the cockpit near where the helm station is, was instead placed in a winch on the mast. A green rope had been wound around the winch. This is where ropes and the winch handle would be if someone was going to lift the sails. It makes a very hard job, much easier. But it didn't make much sense that they were there for the morning and overnight, especially when the sails didn't need to be lifted. The boat had to be searched from top to bottom. This included the deck, the outdoor cockpit, and the interior saloon where the kitchen, bedrooms, and bathroom were located. Inside the boat, police found a knife. They found blood spatter on the companionway, which is the stairs that you would walk down to get to the bottom level or to the saloon. They also found a flashlight with blood on it. A couple carpet pieces were missing. The EPIRB, which is a personal beacon programmed to emit its location when it becomes submerged, was missing as well. It emits a signal for 24 hours to help authorities find a boat that has sunk or is in distress. The EPIRB was found later the same day. The only thing is, it was found on a beach that was in the opposite direction from where the wind would have blown it. Maybe the tide carried it, but it was found higher on the beach than the tide reached that day. Another interesting thing was the police had searched the beach and people had walked the beach earlier in the day and it hadn't been seen. So it's believed that someone may have put it there on purpose. It's my understanding that an EPIRB is made to work either by manually turning it on or it's designed to float loose and turn itself on after it's been submerged between two and four meters into the sea, so six to 12 feet approximately. The boat didn't sink, so the EPIRB had to have been tossed into the water intentionally, if it entered the water at all that night. I personally wouldn't have known that it had to reach a depth of two to four meters, and I live on a sailboat. I just assumed that when it got wet, it would turn on. So whoever put it in the water had to know precisely how an EPIRB worked, or they somehow disabled it, or once again, it was never put in the water, and it was instead planted on the beach. Either way, it seems like whoever took the EPIRB knew its purpose and was likely a sailor. Sue had to walk through the boat that contained what she assumed to be Bob's blood. Surely she was assuming the worst. The police noted that she spoke of Bob in the past tense, and even though she was asked repeatedly not to, she kept moving things around on the boat and turned on several electrical switches. She was in no state to give a statement but she was able to give a basic timeline of where she had been during the day and the night before. She told police that she had left the dinghy at the Royal Yacht Club, and she had no idea how it ended up floating freely and bumping up on the rocks in a different part of the bay. She recounted securely tying it like she always did the day before. She wasn't new to sailboats, as she had owned one in the past. That being said, not tying a dinghy properly is a fairly common mistake. One that many have made, and even seasoned sailors can make. Police took the dinghy and processed it, 
hoping they could find some evidence that might shed some light on where Bob had gone. They sprayed the surface with luminol, and under the lights, a huge area lit up. This showed that some bloody mess had happened in the dinghy. Briefly, they wondered if perhaps Bob had committed suicide. But by all accounts, his relationship with Sue was stable, and he was looking forward to retirement and his dreams of sailing. Another possibility was that maybe the couple had decided to scuttle the boat. Perhaps they'd wanted to collect on the insurance because the boat had become too much of a financial burden for the both of them. Maybe they needed some quick cash. But this didn't seem to be the case because both of them were excited about the project and they had the financial means to do what they had been dreaming of. Plus, Bob was missing. Sue eventually was taken to the police station to give a formal interview. She claimed that the day she left the dinghy at the Royal Yacht Club, she went to a large household store called Bunnings Warehouse. She claimed that she went there often and enjoyed going. She said she was there for hours, just walking up and down the aisles looking for a few items. She said she may have been there for three or four hours. She didn't have her cell phone on her, and even though she was worried about Bob not being able to reach her, she knew she'd be able to check the messages later, so she didn't think too much of it. She said that even after all that time, she left the store without buying a single thing. She couldn't remember exactly when she got home, but she knew that it was starting to get dark. When she finally got to checking, there was no message from Bob, so she assumed everything was okay. Throughout the course of her evening, she received a couple phone calls from friends and family. The last call she got was one from Richard King, claiming that Bob's daughter had that terrible intuition about something happening to Bob. Her phone records confirmed these stories, but it also showed that she made a star 10 hash call at 3.30 in the morning. This is like star 69 in the States. That's kind of odd. Why would she need to know the number that last dialed her at 3 in the morning? She told police that once she went to bed, she never left the house until she received a phone call from them early the next morning. Later that day, when the EPIRB was found, police saw that an inlet valve on the beacon was broken. They also began to think that there was foul play involved in Bob's disappearance. They took the boat to a nearby marina and had it lifted out of the water in order to study it in a more secure environment. Forensic testing found the DNA of an unknown female on the upper deck on the starboard walkway. In other words, on the right side of the boat. Several people had been on and off the boat by this time, and they assumed that it was likely cross-contamination. By this time, people had walked all over the boat, and this DNA may have been picked up and placed on the boat with someone's shoes. This is referred to as secondary transfer. This was one of the very few clues they had. The sample was sent to a lab in Melbourne, and the test surprisingly showed that this was not transfer DNA. This DNA came directly from the source. It was from someone who was present at the scene. They could tell it came from a female, but who could it be? Maybe the DNA was on the boat before Bob and Sue owned it. It didn't belong to Sue. Detectives worked long and hard on trying to find a match to this DNA, but they couldn't. So they put out a plea to the public and asked for information. Witnesses came forward saying they had seen a gray aluminum dinghy attached to the boat on Australia Day in the afternoon. 
but it didn't sound like the blue and white one that belonged to Bob and Sue. This is a point that would come back to haunt police. They seemed to believe that the white dinghy was in the shadow of the boat, so it appeared gray, and the lead was never followed up on. Witnesses placed a dinghy at the location of the boat until 4 p.m. Even with a possible second dinghy, police still found Sue suspicious. When they asked her if she and Bob had been fighting, she admitted that they had an argument that afternoon, which resulted in Bob deciding he would stay on the boat that night while she would go home. More damning for Sue was that police believed the person who had cut the pipe to the toilet, removed the carpeting, and unscrewed the flooring to reach the hidden seacock would have had to have known the boat intimately. A second piece of evidence that indicated Sue's involvement was that the police had found a red jacket that had been discarded and was laying on a street between the yacht club and the rocks where the dinghy had been found. The man who found it near his yard said that it hadn't been there the evening before when he got home from work. When questioned about it, Sue said she didn't own the red jacket, but her daughters claimed that it was hers after all. When Sue was asked a second time whether the red jacket belonged to her, and when she was confronted with the information her daughters had given, she admitted that yes, the jacket was hers. Why would she lie about something as little as this if she had nothing to do with Bob's disappearance? It doesn't end there, though. The day that the police called Sue to come out to the boat, she had been wearing a wrist brace and bandages on her hand. When pictures were viewed of her on board the boat the previous day, she wore no wristband or bandages. Police began digging a little deeper into Sue's story. They went to the Bunnings warehouse and asked for the CCTV footage that was taken during the time she claimed to be there. She couldn't be found on the footage at all. Not only that, but the store closed at 6 o'clock, long before it got dark. Investigators questioned her again a week after her first interview. She said she left the Four Winds at 2 p.m. She said she arrived at Bunnings at around 4.40 p.m., where she searched the aisles looking for wood and non-slip mats. She repeated that she had gone up and down every aisle and she couldn't find what she wanted, so she left. This timing was odd because the store wasn't far from the dock, just a couple miles away. This left a lot of time unaccounted for. A month later, she was invited in for a third time. By this time, she had found out the police weren't able to find her on the CCTV footage. So this time, she said maybe she was mistaken and that she'd gone on another day. She visited Bunnings Warehouse frequently. She said she was pretty sure she went there. When she was confronted with the fact that the store closed at 6 p.m., leaving her only an hour and 20 minutes of shopping time, which was a huge contradiction to her spending hours and hours there, and it didn't fit with her story that she didn't arrive home until it was after dark, she couldn't explain why she changed her story, and she couldn't explain why she wasn't on any of the CCTV footage. To add to the confusion of her stories, she had told an ABC journalist that she had driven down to the water that night to check on the Four Winds. She told another reporter that she had driven down to the waterfront to make sure that everything was okay with the yacht. When she saw that everything was okay, she decided to leave the car and walk home, just for the exercise. Neither of these stories made sense if her first statements were true. If you recall, she said after Bunning Warehouse, she went home made her phone calls, and then went to bed after the last phone call, 
She never mentioned having gone to the waterfront in her official reports, and police wanted to know why. When they asked her, she said no, her visit to Bunnings was a totally different day. What really happened was that she left later than 2 p.m., maybe closer to 4. She then walked the two miles home, just for the exercise. She claimed that after her phone call with Richard King, she got worried about Bob. Bob's daughter was unstable, and she was worried that maybe his daughter would come down to the boat and hurt him. Sue had never met Richard King in person before but she knew he was Bob's daughter Claire's caregiver. She had known that Claire had severe mental issues and was worried about Bob. Richard told Sue that Claire had a vision of sorts and had told him that in the vision she had seen the boat sink and that Claire was worried about Bob. Sue said there had been ongoing problems with Claire over the years and she wasn't sure whether she should take the phone call seriously or not. She decided the best thing she could do was go down and check on him quickly. So she walked down to the waterfront to pick the car up. When she got there, she realized that she had brought the wrong keys. So she walked home, got the right ones, and walked back to the vehicle. This would be a total of eight miles of walking that day. She then drove to where she could take a look at the boat on the water and didn't see any activity, so she drove back home. The police asked why she had never said anything about doing this before, and she claimed she was just trying to protect Bob's daughter. Police then told her that a witness had come forward, claiming that they had seen someone that they believed to be a female just after midnight. She had been traveling in an inflatable dinghy from the direction of the docks out towards the direction of the four winds. This was at a time when Sue Neil Fraser ultimately admitted to being in the area but she denied ever going to the four winds. Suspicious. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Police were still investigating the scene as well. They did an underwater search for material in the bay and found 90 points of interest. They investigated 25 of them but found nothing. There were some areas that were too deep to explore and the visibility was often very poor. They never found Bob or his remains. Four months went by, and during that time, Sue changed her story again. This time, she said, she must not have gone to Bunnings that day. Instead, she must have left the boat later than she had thought. She thought she must have left around four. This change in the story would help give her a reason why her dinghy was seen up at the boat until 4 p.m., which was in contradiction to her first story. She said she couldn't remember when she got home, whether it was light or dark, or anything about her arrival time at her house. Police still felt like Sue was responsible for Bob's disappearance, so they started looking a little deeper into her relationship with him. The couple had both been married before and had children from other relationships. Bob had three children. His relationship with his three children was strained. Bob's daughter Claire, as we know, had mental health issues, but they had never been diagnosed or treated properly. 
Bob, as a physician, couldn't seem to come to terms with her issues. Because of this, he didn't spend much time with her, and the little time they did spend together was uncomfortable and volatile. Claire seemed to have an issue with Sue, and the last time that she and Bob had spoke was more than a year before he disappeared. At that time, she had threatened to commit suicide if Bob didn't leave Sue. Maybe Claire knew something the rest of the world didn't. On Australia Day, Sue admitted that she had been arguing with Bob. Two different witnesses had stated that she told them that their relationship was over and had been over for some time. Police decided it was time to bug Sue's phone. They had collected hundreds of hours of surveillance, and by the end of 2009, they felt they had enough circumstantial evidence to convict Sue of Bob's murder. Sue insisted that she was innocent. Her daughter stood behind her, and they have never backed down. They couldn't believe that she was a suspect in murdering Bob. It just wasn't like her, and it wasn't in her nature. In March of 2010, the DNA found on the deck was finally matched to a young woman named Megan Vass. Police had been able to match her because her DNA had been tested in an unrelated case. She was a 16-year-old homeless girl at the time of the murders. When she was asked whether or not she had been on the boat, she claimed that she hadn't. During that time frame, she had been staying in a homeless shelter. Megan Vass had issues with addiction and had a really hard time remembering anything about the time in question. She had been living on the streets for two years and had no recollection of being near the water on Australia Day of 2009. The DNA evidence was compelling, however, and she was called to attend Sue's trial. At the trial, she confirmed her story that she had no recollection of ever being on the Four Winds. When it came time for the prosecution to question Megan, he told her that he had come across evidence that she was indeed in the area on the night in question. She had been booked into the Newtown Women's Shelter that night, but she had told staff that she was going to visit friends. She was supposed to call and leave her friend's address or phone number, but she never did. She left the shelter at 3.50 p.m. She had no alibi for her whereabouts. The prosecution did not recall her and she was not questioned further. Sue and her supporters believed she would be acquitted because there was no body, no murder, no weapon, and no witness. Everything that they had built on the case was circumstantial and hearsay. Her defense team was also able to point out mistakes that had been made during the investigation. They pointed out that the police never followed up to research the gray dinghy that had been seen tied up to the four winds. The prosecution felt strongly that Sue had gone aboard the boat at some point that afternoon. They believed that she killed Bob by hitting him over the head with something, perhaps the fire extinguisher that went missing. They believed she killed him and left him on the boat. She then returned to the boat during the night and used the ropes and winch to pull him up out of the interior of the boat. She brought him up on the deck and threw him into the dinghy and then she disposed of his body somewhere in the ocean. Bob wasn't a big man, and Sue, with the help of winches, would likely have been strong enough to get him outside the boat and into the dinghy. Not only that, but they felt that the boat had been scuttled by someone who knew the boat intimately. Other than Bob, no one else would have had that information except for Sue. They believed that she had killed him that afternoon, then cut the toilet line and opened the seacock. She then went to the shore like normal and went home to establish an alibi. She was surely thinking that the boat would sink by morning. 
When she received the phone call from Richard King later that night, she got panicked and paranoid, and so she quickly drove back out to the waterfront, dinghied to the four winds, and removed Bob's body from the boat. She was worried that someone might come looking for him before the boat had the opportunity to sink completely. She put Bob's body into the dinghy and disposed of him. She probably used the fire extinguisher to weigh his body down. She then returned to the boat, cleaned up the scene, and then left. They believed that her reason for doing this was financial gain. Her relationship with Bob was coming to an end, and she knew that since they had never been married, she could never get her hands on his net worth of $1.3 million. If he died, however, she had been written into his will. The prosecution had a man named Philip Triffitt make his statement. Philip had been friends with Bob and Sue years earlier, but had had a falling out with them. He had come to police to tell them that he had information he wanted to share. He said that ten years before, Sue had plotted to murder Bob and tried to enlist his help. She told him that Bob was mean to her about money. He suggested that Bob was dangerous and more or less said that he had to go. He said that Sue had said she wanted to wrap Bob's body in chicken wire and throw him into the water. He also said that around the same time, she said she wanted to kill her brother in the same way because they were having a dispute about the inheritance from her mother's passing. She denied the claims, but his testimony supported the prosecution's opinion that the murder was premeditated. When the defense asked Philip whether he received any benefit from his statement, he was told that yes, he had come to police to tell them about Sue, but that he had charges against him for possession of stolen goods and for possessing ammunition without a license. Some of these charges were dropped. He claimed he did this out of the goodness of his heart, not because he needed help with his charges. Sue's defense team stated that Philip held animosity towards Sue because she had filed a police report against him in 2001. She had been concerned for her and Bob's safety after their falling out. Her defense team said that no one who knew Sue thought her capable of murder. They also thought that her and Bob's relationship was strong. When asked why her statements were so confused and why she went to the waterfront to look at the four winds, her reasoning for not being honest at first was because she had just learned that Bob was missing. She was in shock and was trying to hold things together for the family. When she spoke to police about what she had done that night, Bob's son Tim was standing right next to her, and in order to try to protect the family, she didn't want to bring Tim's sister Claire's name into the mix. Her mental illness was a sensitive issue, and she didn't want to share the phone call with Claire's caregiver the night before, because it might indicate Claire's involvement in Bob's disappearance. What she didn't know at the time was that Richard King had also called Tim to share the same information. Tim had been shaken up enough that he went to see Claire that night. He wanted to make sure she wouldn't hurt Bob. At that time, they still hoped that Bob was alive, and so Sue was trying to protect the family's reputation under the circumstances. She never thought it would make her look guilty. Some footage from an ATM machine saw a car that matched Sue's drive by at 12.30 p.m. When her daughters were asked about this car, they said it did look similar to their mom's, but their statement was taken down as fact that it was Sue's car. Her supporters said that she was also taking Valium, which was something she wasn't used to taking. 
Therefore, her mind may have been a little more muddled than normal, and that might be part of why her statements were confused at first. When Sue said she didn't recognize the red jacket, it was because she had just bought several older jackets from Goodwill. They used them when working on the boat. The reason it was found where it was was likely because the killer had worn it on that day and then left it on the street after dumping Bob's body. Police never tested the jacket. They had found a long dark hair on the jacket. Perhaps it belonged to Megan Vass. A supporter of Sue's spent the money to have the hair tested. It came back as not belonging to Sue or her daughters or Megan Vass. The hair came back as belonging to another woman who had been arrested on the other side of town that same night. It was most likely that it had nothing to do with Bob's disappearance. If Sue had hired a lawyer early on or just shut her mouth about the case, she would likely have never gone to jail. There simply wasn't enough real evidence in the case. Her inconsistencies are what led to her sentencing. Some of the evidence that supported someone other than Sue being found guilty wasn't investigated or disappeared. The dinghy that had lit up with luminol was found to have never had blood in it. In fact, the illumination came from something else like bleach or the paint on the dinghy floor. This was never clarified in court. One theory was that perhaps the Four Winds was used in a drug smuggling in the past. Around the time of the incident, several boats had been boarded because of drug smuggling suspicions, and drugs had been found inside a fire extinguisher that looked just like the one Bob and Sue had on their boat. Sue put forth the idea that perhaps drug smugglers had come on board the boat for the fire extinguisher, not realizing that Bob was aboard. Chaos ensued, and Bob was killed. The prosecution stated that Sue had a reason for attacking Bob. She had a plan for how to do it, and she thought she would get away with it. This wasn't a crime of passion, and said it was planned and thought out. Sue Neal Fraser was found guilty. She was sentenced to 23 years in prison. She and her family continued to maintain her innocence. They refused to accept her sentence. She has appealed centering around Megan Vass. Why was her DNA on the boat? They said that either she murdered Bob or she knew something about the people who had done it. Sue said that the four winds had been broken into two weeks earlier. There were notes about this in the boat's log. When police looked at the log, it appeared that the note about the robbery had been squeezed in between two other notes, but a writing specialist disagreed with this assumption. Sue's appeal was not successful, but that did knock two years off her sentence. Her team worked so hard on trying to prove her innocence that they actually did more harm than good. Three people have been charged with offenses against providing false evidence. One was her lawyer. He had made a photo board, which he had shown to eyewitness Stephen Gleason. Stephen had claimed that a young guy and girl had come by his car. He was living rough then and had been sleeping in his car for about nine months by that time. The couple had woken him up and claimed that they were hungry, so he got out some sausages and cooked for the three of them. After that, they left, saying they were going to go steal some things from the boats. He later identified Megan Vass on the photo board provided to him, but under cross-examination, he revealed that he had failed to tell police about this in three previous interviews. When asked whether this was because he wasn't telling the truth, he later said he was prepared to lie to help Sue Neal Fraser out of her sentence. 
He was charged with two counts of perverting the course of justice, to which he pled guilty. He received a 12-month sentence with a minimum of six months. Another man named Colin McLaren was not officially part of the investigation. He was a crime writer who became heavily involved in Sue's story. He mentioned at one point that it would be very compelling if Megan Vass admitted that she was on board the yacht that night. He and Sue's defense team began hounding Megan Vass. Comments were made that perhaps if they paid her, she would say she was on the boat. Mr. McLaren admitted to suggesting that Megan should be given $10,000, and then he agreed to write the lines, which Megan later signed as her statement. In his defense, he claimed he was just trying to help her with the legalese because Megan struggled with her understanding of the system. The prosecution accused McLaren of fabricating her statement. They also showed video evidence of McLaren giving Megan Vass's boyfriend several copies of her statement. In it, McLaren is heard stating, in case the bitch screws it up. McLaren also admitted to paying money to another woman who helped him get in touch with Mrs. Vass. In 2019, Megan Vass came forward. She decided it was time to tell her story. She finally admitted that she was on the Four Winds that night. Her boyfriend had been stealing from boats for some time and found it fairly easy to do. He would look for boats with no dinghies and assumed that they were empty. She and her boyfriend, who was a petty thief from a local family, had climbed on to the Four Winds. They weren't alone, though. They had a third person with them named Paul Rowe. Paul Rowe had served time in prison. When he was freed, he bought a boat, and surprisingly enough, he was tied to a mooring fairly close to the Four Winds. Paul Rowe was a hardened criminal. He had many offenses to his name, and one of them was even an accusation of being a hitman. Some people believe he is a serial killer. When the three of them climbed aboard the Four Winds, they were surprised to be confronted by Bob. Bob told them to leave, and an argument ensued. This resulted in Bob's death. The assault on Bob was violent and took nearly 20 minutes. Megan Vass stood by watching. It made her sick, and she threw up on the boat's deck. She didn't take part in the murder, and she felt so sick that she asked her boyfriend to take her to shore. She said she'd been afraid for years to tell the truth because she was afraid something bad would happen to her. She said she never saw what happened after the attack, but when she saw the police in the bay the following day, she knew something bad had happened. When police tracked her ex-boyfriend down, he was interviewed for only 30 minutes, telling police that the attack never happened and he was never on the boat. When Paul Rowe was questioned, he denied her story as well. He gave his DNA and fingerprints, and this was checked against forensic evidence from the Four Winds, with no match. He later informed police that he was leaving the country and sold his boat. In March of this year, 2021, Megan testified that she had been on a yacht with three other men. One of them assaulted Mr. Chapel. The next day, in cross-examination, she once again changed her story, telling the prosecution that she had never been on the yacht. Sue's lawyers eventually decided to abandon Megan's testimony. Instead, they focused on what they labeled as issues in the original trial, namely the DNA evidence of Miss Vass. Sue's supporters feel optimistic and hope the judges will recognize a substantial miscarriage of justice. Her daughter believes that she should be acquitted so that she can get out of jail and have her name cleared. 
at Sue's second appeal after Megan's statement was made and then recalled. The prosecution claimed that Megan's testimony was coerced. They claimed that Megan was paid $10,000 for her testimony, and Sue's appeal was denied. Megan then went on 60 Minutes Australia to tell her story. She insisted that her written statement was true, and the only reason she took her statement back in court was because she was made to feel so uncomfortable at the appeal hearing, and she just wanted it to be over. Sue's supporters asked that her case be reopened, and permission was granted. Sue Neal Frazier is about halfway through her 23-year prison sentence. In August of 2022, she'll be eligible for parole, but she wants to go free as an innocent woman. This case is extremely controversial in Australia, and it's easy to see why. My head is spinning with all the contradictory stories and lack of any real evidence. Where is Bob's body? If it's in that bay, why hasn't it ever shown up? And if it's not in the bay, where is it? I lean towards Sue being guilty, but I don't feel like I could say so with 100% certainty. Let's hope that justice is fairly served in this case. Thank you so much for listening. I have a couple special thank yous today, and the first is to all you listeners down under. I hope I did this case justice. The second thank you is to a new listener named Luis. She says, I've been listening all day to these podcasts. I'm really enjoying what I'm hearing so far. It's been a while that I have found something as good as this. My only negative comment is that I'm not a fan of the music in the background. It reminds me of that awful music which used to be played in supermarkets. It's very distracting. The narrator has a brilliant voice, so why have the music? First, thank you so much for reaching out and sharing your thoughts with me. I love to get feedback, whether it's positive or negative. Anything to make the podcast better. I appreciate. The reason I typically put that music in the background is to help cover up some of the boat noises. It can be pretty loud and it's sort of difficult to record on our sailboat. But luckily this morning we're in a very calm anchorage and there's very little wind. So I'm going to let this one go with no music in the background. And I'd love to hear from some of you other listeners. Do you like the music? Would you prefer not to have it? Is it distracting from the story? Please let me know. I want to make this the best podcast that it can be. That being said, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Give the podcast a good rating or review. If you have a case suggestion, please feel free to reach out on social media. You can find Twisted Travel and True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I also have a Gmail address. There are links to those in the episode description. You can also give some money to support the podcast. Your money would go towards research and production costs and is greatly appreciated. You will also find a link in the show description to donate to the show if you would like to. Thanks once again, and until next time, I wish you all fair winds and following seas.